Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of the Case Podcast. In our conversation today, I have Eric Norman here. Uh, he's the person behind Lispcast and Purely Functional TV. He's a consultant and he's the author of Grokking Simplicity. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So um, I think you're pretty well known for being a functional programmer in a lot of different languages. Um, what did get you into functional programming and what's keeping you there? Oh, uh, good question. Um, so I started learning functional programming a long time ago when I was still in college. I took a course on um, artificial intelligence. This was old school artificial intelligence before the machine learning mm -hmm. revolution happened. Uh, this is in like, I don't know, or late 99, or 2000, something like that. And uh, so it was very old school. It was uh, in Lisp. Mm -hmm. And we had to learn common Lisp for the class. And at first I was very skeptical. It felt very awkward. Uh, but by the end of the class, I felt like there was so much more there. The, the stuff we had written was so much more powerful and uh, easy to write than Java, which is what all the other classes were in. I don't think I could have done it in Java, mm -hmm. those, those assignments. You know, the assignments were stuff like um, make a simple logic reasoner right mm -hmm. so you would give it some some propositions in just propositional logic you know a and b and not c you know and, and you just have a list of these and then uh a conclusion and you would say whether that conclusion follows logically from that set of premises mm -hmm. and you can do that pretty mechanically but it, it basically involved um manipulating this big long list of all the possible uh things that you can deduce from those those uh uh from those initial premises and just keep expanding it and expanding it and reducing it like you know normalizing the forms of each one so that you can compare oh i already know that i already know these and so you keep your list small and you can just keep growing it uh and eventually you might hit the conclusion Mm -hmm. uh, and then you'd know whether it was true. Right. So, um, I, that kind of thing, like would have been really hard to do in Java. Mm -hmm. Uh, you would just have to write so much stuff yourself, or you would write it, you know, after you've learned how to write it in Lisp, you might go back and say, well, I'm just going to do it using <laughs> like a hash map and, you know, strings and stuff like, you know, just basic stuff and not try to model it with classes. Um, so anyway, I got, uh, interested in it by that. And then I, I had some time, you know, I was in college, I had a lot of free time. And one thing I got interested in was writing a game. Mm -hmm. And so I looked around and, um, I read something, I think it was by Richard Stallman, the author of Emacs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was an interview and someone had asked him, like, why, why is it written in Lisp? And he said, well, Lisp is something cool because you can write one in a weekend. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, 
I could write a lisp in a weekend and then build my game in that <laughs> instead of writing it in C, which what might be fun, but mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it seemed like a cool challenge. And so I wrote a lisp in C. It took more than a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I could probably do it in a weekend now that I've done it before, you know, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, the first time took a while and I had a garbage collector and, a, and an evaluator and interpreter and it worked, you know, it did basic stuff. I never got around to writing the game. I just got fascinated by this lisp. And, um, anyway, all, all these things sent me down this road, you know, combined with my, uh, contrarianism, mm-hmm. my natural contrarianism, like wanting to do things a different way from what everyone else was doing. Everyone else in my school was using Java. Um, I started doing my class assignments in Lisp and uh, found that I was doing them more easily than the people doing Java. Um, and I, I don't know. I just that's that's where it all started and. I had to go down a road of uh, basically learning object-oriented programming better than I had so that I could unlearn it. Yeah. Like, what am I actually doing here? Why, why are these classes here? What, you know, just really introspecting and researching like what is going on here and realizing you know, where it's good and where it's not so good and um, uprooting the hold it had on me where I just would do that by default and get more and more into the functional stuff. Oh, nice. Okay. So, so you already said you're a little bit of a contrarian. Um, Mm -hmm. I noticed when reading your book that sometimes you use different words for concepts that I know from uh, different fields. And one of them is uh, that you're talking about functional thinking instead of functional programming. What's the difference between those words or are they the same word? Um, that's a really good, uh, question. And it actually has a really complex answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really. Uh, and I don't know, well, I'll, I'll just go and explain it. So, um, I wanted my book. This is like when I first started thinking I'm going to write a book, I wanted the book to be called functional program, mm-hmm. like full stop, like no, no subtitle or anything. I just wanted this to be the book. Mm-hmm. on functional programming. And, you know, I, I, I've written a lot of blog posts and done a lot of SEO. And so, you know, you just write your post, the title of what it is, right? <laughs> and, and just want to explain to people what it's about. But the publisher had a different idea. Uh, they actually thought that um, using functional programming in a title is bad for marketing. For sales mm-hmm. like people don't want to read a book on functional programming um so we disagreed and so i think functional thinking was the the compromise mm-hmm. that like you know his idea was well it's not we're not going to tell them it's about functional programming but it's about how to think like a functional programmer so it's going to mm-hmm. be called functional thinking um i actually do like the the term functional thinking though um it's focusing more on the the concepts and the sort of mental skills that are necessary uh, when doing functional programming. 
and that you're approaching a problem from a different way um, instead of what a lot of functional programming books are about, uh, which is more about like what the code looks like and what, you know, what techniques um, or, you know, how to use some functional library or, or something like that. That's not really what the book is about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, but still the, the title of the book uh, is Grokking Simplicity. So mm -hmm. what's the connection to simplicity? Why, why uh, is there simplicity in the title and not functional? Okay. Uh, again, a complex, yeah. <laughs> complex uh, answer. So, um, I wrote several drafts of the first couple chapters, first three chapters, really, um, before landing on the format that it's in now. Mm -hmm. um, one format, uh, which actually got really far in, um, you know, polish in one of the drafts, uh, was the introduction was going to kind of justify functional programming. Like, what is the reason it exists? And so it was an analysis of complexity in software. Where, why does software get complex? And it was actually a really deep analysis. Um, it was all about, I, I identified two big sources of complexity that the book was going to tackle. The first one was uh, this complexity that happens when you have multiple threads or multiple concurrent operations happening, which happens in JavaScript. You don't have multiple threads, but you have all these uh, callbacks mm -hmm. happening, all these events happening concurrently. Uh, you don't get to control which event happens next, for instance, which, which Ajax uh, response comes back next. Um, so because of that, uh, you have this explosion of the ways that they can interleave. It actually, if you do the analysis, it's factorial. It grows factorially based on the size of the, you know, the number of steps that you have yeah. in each in each timeline. And factorial growth is really big. So that means that you have to know as a programmer that all possible paths, because any one of them could happen when a user does something, any one of them, any one of these factorial, you know, we're talking about you have... 12 steps in a process and two of them running at the same time, it's already a million different ways that they can run. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is the kind of, this is what the chapter was about, right? Yes. You got a million different ways that they can run. And your job as a programmer is to guarantee that all of them are correct. <laughs> and if you put a 13th one, it's at like 7 million, right? Cause it's mm -hmm. factorial. It, it explodes really fast. So, uh, This is, uh, this is hard. And, and the, the, the complexity is more like algorithmic complexity where you're kind of analyzing not, you know, it's something measurable, like how many steps does this take as, it, as something grows, right? So that was one source of complexity. Uh, and the other source of complexity was with... Uh, branching. Mm -hmm. So if you have an if statement that implies two branches, right? One where the if is true, the test is true, and one where the test is false. 
And if you have two in a row, they multiply. So you have four. You have three in a row. That's eight different ways that something can happen, right? You have eight different paths through these three uh, these three branches. And so it's it's multiplying. It's like an exponential increase in the number of branches. So the question is, are all of them correct? If any of those branches can happen, every time you add a conditional, you're potentially doubling the number of paths. Um, we want to reduce the number of conditionals. Yes. Right. And one source of uh, conditionals is having a poorly fit data model. Right. Mm-hmm. This is this was my this is my attempt at solving the problem is like you're going to need conditionals like some fields some domains are really complex okay so uh, my solution was to have a better fitting data model because every time you have a corner case you need a branch to determine whether you're in that corner case this was my idea right and I was going to spend a lot of time talking about how to do a better fit data model. Mm-hmm. And both of these ideas, this idea of, of managing the complexity of, of, of the interleavings, of the number of orderings of different timelines and data modeling, I, was, I, was, I think that they come from functional programming. Yeah, like You don't see this that much in say, object-oriented programming. Um, And that was my initial idea. Uh, I think the book would have been very boring if I had started, if I had actually published those, that Mm -hmm. draft. Mm -hmm. But it was good for me to have like an underlying understanding of what the real problem that I was solving was. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, proposing a solution to. And, uh, I eventually came up with a different format that I think is better at teaching. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot less theoretical. It's more like let's get into the code and 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 so I don't actually talk about those things so much that complexity. Uh, and so it's I think that the the problem is the the disconnect is there, like it's 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 not obvious that it's about complexity and you know it's opposite simplicity Mm -hmm. because i don't talk about it so much when i'm actually teaching the thing so it it is a good question uh and it's it's like it's got a historical reason yeah the the title was chosen by the publisher because that's their job right they Mm -hmm. do the cover and the title and you know how that's all the stuff that's you know the marketing stuff and the publisher had read this uh, other draft mm-hmm. and hadn't read the new draft mm-hmm. and so didn't know that it was a totally different kind of book. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's busy and like that was, that was, uh, I mean, I didn't know that at the time that he hadn't read it, but he proposed this title and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a wrong title or anything, but no, I I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, <laughs> no um, I, I wasn't implying that. It wasn't the title I wanted, which was 
functional programming. Uh -huh. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So so much in the title already. Um, so um, yeah. one thing that I found interesting is uh, in, in, in the foreword, uh, Guy Steele talks about uh, organizing side effects as like the main thing in functional programming, right? Mm. Uh, but in, in your book, you call it implicit and explicit inputs and outputs. Why did right. you choose those words? And what do you mean with those for those people who don't know what side effects are? Right. Okay. So side effect is a term used uh, in functional programming to talk about stuff that happens when you call a function that is separate from the arguments and the return value. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you're the a function. Uh, Is, is supposed to be like a mathematical function. Mm -hmm. This is the idea that functional programming, this is where the term comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Like you call a function to get its return value and anything else that happens is kind of this side effect that you have to worry about. Just like when you take a medicine, you take the, you know, the, the ibuprofen to get rid of your headache, but maybe it, you know, makes you drowsy, you know, whatever mm -hmm. is the side effect. And so your function might have the side effect of mutating a variable, mm -hmm. a global variable, or it might have a side effect of um, sending an email. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the idea of side effect. In, the, in my book, I want it to be a little bit more clear that there are you know, side effects that... Um, I want to cut it in two. So, so there are some side effects that are getting information into the function. So you might be reading from the database, right? Or, and there are some side effects that are um, sending data out of the function, right? So you might be sending an email or writing to a file or something. And because they have to be um, mitigated in different ways. So an implicit input you want to make that into an explicit input. Mm -hmm. And the explicit inputs of a function are its arguments. So instead of reading from the database in the function, you read from the database outside of it and pass in the value you get from the database as an argument. Likewise, instead of writing to the file, you would return the you know, string or whatever that you would have written to the file. And then the thing that called you would save it and then write that to the file. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's a, a, a way of kind of explicitly laying out the process of, of this refactoring, of, of moving, making something into a function without side effects, which I call a calculation in the mm -hmm. book. Okay, so so uh, in in the book you, you uh, say that there are calculations and actions, but the mm -hmm. third actor in this play is data. So mm -hmm. what is data, and how like are data? You also talk about events. Are all is all data events, or what's the connection there? Right. So if you look up data in the dictionary, um, which. I feel like you have to do if you're writing a book <laughs> and you're going to use a term like that. Uh, one of the definitions is facts about events. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really captures the, the essence of data in a computer program. 
in software engineering. Uh, we're building information systems. We're getting information. You know, information is coming into the system. We're doing something with it, and then we're sending more information out, right? Maybe in a different form or something. Um, the your your question is: Is all data events mm-hmm. right? And I think the answer is yes. And I, uh, so let me explain that because a lot of people ask that they're like, well, what if it's not an event, right? Like I have data about a person. Mm -hmm. And so that's not an event. That's a, that's a, you know, an entity in the world. It's a, it's an object, you know, it's, it's not an event, but where did that data come from? You know, maybe it was from someone submitting a form on a website and that receipt of that that request that form post is an event Mm -hmm. all you know is they they someone filled out this field this field and pressed submit and you got that you Mm -hmm. don't know if that actually corresponds to somebody's real name that's Mm -hmm. just this thing that they posted that's all you know right so it is an event and we often forget that and so i wanted a definition that highlighted that that's all events, right? It's and we we make assumptions. We have to that like, well, the data I get is garbage in, garbage out. If you give me bad data, I can't like mm-hmm. <laughs> figure out what's the truth. <laughs> um, but it's all events, and uh, we we do transformations and we make assumptions so that we can interpret that data. But are those events? But it's all just facts about the events. You know, you could have a, an event like, well, I read the thermometer at this time and it told me this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all you know. You just have some sensor data. It's a fact about what happened at that time. Doesn't mean anything about like you have a true idea, true a true understanding of the actual temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that that's what the sensor sent you. Mm-hmm. Sensor could be faulty. They could have been at a weird time where like, you know, a piece of a, a drop of water fell on it. You know, it's all sorts of problems. So you have to remember that these are just, you know, moments in time and data and facts about what, what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so we have uh, our calculations, our actions, and our our events, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. one of the examples in the book that I really liked is uh, from real life. So, I want to go grocery grocery shopping, and I want to know what I need. So, I go to my fridge, mm-hmm. then I walk to the store, I buy something, I go back. Right? If I if I describe it like that, then all of those things are basically actions, right? They all have mm-hmm. side effects. So, how does functional thinking help me? to find calculations or maybe events in this uh, procedure. Right. So what, what I think happens is that the stuff that's usually that is that I'm calling calculations, all these functions without side effects, they're happening, but they're all in the person's head. Mm -hmm. So they're invisible. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, the the driving to the store, putting stuff in your shopping cart, all that stuff you can observe someone do. 
what you can observe them do is think, well, I have, you know, I have orange juice and milk and tomatoes, uh, but I need, you know, orange juice, milk, tomatoes, carrots, onions, etc. What do I need to buy? Mm-hmm. Right? They make this calculation in their head. This is it happens, and it might even be instantaneous. Like they don't even realize they're not doing it consciously. But when you sit down to think about how to program it, you know, like obviously something needs to calculate what to buy based on what what you have and what you need, right? And so um, the the calculations are often if you're using this kind of real world process that you're trying to break down the calculations are often thought processes mm-hmm. and what's interesting about thought processes is just thinking about what you need does not affect the world mm-hmm. right and so that shows you that the calculations you know can be run you can run them twice you can do the same calculation twice you should get the same answer uh, and it's not going to change anything so it's safe to run them twice as mm. well. Um, the The question about where do you find the data? Um, the data is often the result of these calculations, right? Uh, there's like kind of in between data. Also, actions can generate data. So, like you look in the fridge, and you see what you have. Uh, looking in the fridge is an action because. You, if you do it at a different time or on a different day, you'll have different stuff in your fridge. Yeah. Your fridge is is changing all the time. Uh, and so uh, it depends on when you do it. And so it's an action. Uh, but it generates sort of a, a list. You know, if you were going to make a data structure out of it, it would be a list of what you have in your fridge. Mm. And you have a list, maybe it's on a piece of paper or in your head, Another is, but it's data of what you need. These are the things I want to have this is what I have. And now these are the things that you need to buy, which is like the difference, right? Um, And uh, a functional programmer gets good at seeing those, those invisible calculations and uh, the sort of transient data that gets, that is the inputs and the outputs of those calculations. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is a good example because if if we look at a fridge, um, then another person, uh, which would be a process in programming probably, uh, could go to the fridge and get in, eat eat a piece of cheese, and uh, close the fridge again while you were shopping, right? So right. The, the the content of the fridge could change since the last time you looked at it. Um, right. So when i talk to p- people that are really into functional programming apart from side effects the other thing that they always talk about is immutability right um mm-hmm. so how can i do something like modeling a fridge immutable because i need some like i need to have side effects i need to have immutability otherwise my programs wouldn't do anything right 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 so that's a really good question um This is one of those, uh, we talked about me being a little contrarian. Yeah. Uh, This is where I think my contrarianism generated a little insight um, compared to the typical view of functional programming. Mm -hmm. Um, I I see 
as a professional functional programmer, my uh, what I do and what other people that I work with do, we do use mutable things all the time. Um, so we do have mutable state. We recognize that we need it. Um, and so we would represent the fridge as a mutable thing, right? Mm-hmm. A mutable variable or, you know, something like that. The difference though, is that we recognize that when I look in that fridge at time X and I make a list of what's in there, when I go to the store, that list cannot change. That Mm -hmm. is what I saw at that time. If my friend, my roommate eats my cheese while I'm at the store, that shouldn't change my current list. Mm-hmm. That would get very confusing very quickly. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, this is what the whole problem of concurrency is because now I'm going to come back home and there's no cheese and I was just at the store. I could have bought it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, so you, you, you have this problem no matter what. There's no way to solve it. Mm-hmm. Like they could text you, I just ate the cheese. Mm-hmm. Well, where are you on your, shopping trip mm-hmm. are you checking out are you on the way home already like there's no way to solve it mm-hmm. you you're gonna have to go to the store again right so it's, it's sometimes some mm-hmm. maybe they catch you at the right time you're in the cheese department you know and they <laughs> they text you right at that time you're like oh that was nice that happened really smoothly um but notice this is another piece of data sent to you mm-hmm. right this is like uh, you know a fact I, we're, we're out of cheese, right? Um, and so you can modify your list based on this new fact coming in, right? So like, just want to make that clear. Uh, nothing is mutating. Yeah. Right. You still remember, well, I had this list that included cheese. I, I thought I had cheese, right? At this time I did have cheese. Now I'm making a new list that's subtracting cheese from <laughs> that mm-hmm. old list I had. Um, so, so, uh, wow. I, 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 it sounds really complicated. Of course, when you describe all this stuff happening in a computer's memory, <laughs> it can get really complicated. Um, and the, the question was about using mutable things. And so mm-hmm. what I think is the, the, the insight that I try to bake into this book is that functional programmers do use mutable state and we have a lot of tricks to make it easier to work with that other, you know, people programming in other paradigms don't use. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to kind of flip it where people typically say, oh, functional programming is all about uh, no side effects. Everything's immutable. And I'm saying, no, it's actually the opposite. The no side effects and everything is immutable. That makes programming really easy. Mm-hmm. that stuff is so simple like just finish you get you know you can just put stuff in there and never worry about it you test it once it works it's never going to change it's fine now let's focus on the hard stuff which is that you're sharing a fridge with your friend you can both change it at the same time i mean not at the same time but like without mm-hmm. each other knowing that you're changing it you have this mutable thing that's shared how do you share it efficiently and productively so that you know you're not stepping all over each other you're not um 
you, you see what I'm saying? So you yeah. might have a, you might have a, uh, a, what I call a, well, what we call concurrency primitives, mm-hmm. right? So like, uh, it, sharing a fridge is different. Let's talk about sharing a, a bathroom, mm-hmm. right? So the typical way you would share a bathroom is you have a lock, mm-hmm. right? Like if I'm in there, I'm going to put the lock and now no one else can come in while I'm in there. So it's like a one at a time kind of situation. And usually that works well enough. If you, if you got two people sharing a bathroom, uh, you know, if, if someone's in there, you, you just come back later, right? Mm-hmm. You just try again. Um, that probably wouldn't work so well if you have 10 people sharing the bathroom. Yeah. Because, you know, there's going to be now like, well, I came back and it was busy with someone else. Like, I should have come back. And so now you want to wait there and just stand there. Now you're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. And now there's a, you know, there, there's all this contention for this shared resource. So you'd probably have to come up with a better concurrency primitive, which might be something like a queue, mm-hmm. right? So, like, okay, I'm going to put a token, my name, like a little, you know, piece of, cardboard with my name on it in line right there's some line next to the bathroom and so when that person comes out when the person in there comes out they're going to call the next person on the list right the Mm -hmm. next person in that queue and say hey it's your turn and then they'll come in right and then you know move their thing out of the queue and so you have a system Mm. that is is somehow fair more fair and it's going to work for this larger contention, this larger amount of contention. Uh, maybe if you had more people sharing that bathroom, you'd need something different, like a schedule. Like, mm. hey, you get to use the bathroom, especially like in the morning when everyone's getting ready. Like, you get the bathroom from this time to this time. If you miss it, you miss it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's fair, you know, and you can kind of work out, well, I need it earlier because I go to work earlier, and whatever. You can work it out. That might be a better system um, for those times. So these are concurrency primitives. And you can code these up. You can program these. And what it turns out that they are is, I mean, what I, how I see them, is you're building a new model of time. Mm-hmm. You're building a new semantics for how this bathroom, how time works for this bathroom. Right? Um, Time, you know, time in a programming language is it, it has a semantics and you have to build on what the programming language gives you to build a new model of time that better, uh, better models the way you need it to run. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, you know, by default, it's unlikely that all the stuff that you need to program happens the right way in your language. Mm-hmm. That that's that's uh, interesting because like one of the principles you also talk about uh, is defensive copying. Is is that in this mm-hmm. category, or is that something different? Uh, d- defensive copying is a is a tool. It's a technique mm-hmm. that um, it works well. So if you're trying to do, you know, maintain an immutable discipline, um, but you have to share data with a system that doesn't implement the same discipline or might not have any discipline. Mm -hmm. Like, so 
you know, we often talk about legacy code, which is code you can't change right now. You don't yeah. have the time to change. And it's often written with older practices or whatever. So it might, you know, you want to pass it a hash map of data or a, an array of data. Uh, and it's going to modify it. Or maybe you don't know. Maybe it will modify it. Maybe it won't. You don't trust it. So what are you going to do? You have to copy the whole thing mm-hmm. and send it the copy. It's the same data, right? It's the same facts, but you're going to give them a copy that can they can do whatever they need to do with. If they're going to add and remove stuff from the list, that's fine. You have your original with you and you kind of lose the copy, the the pointer to the copy um, because you don't you don't want to accidentally, you know, use it mm-hmm. later because okay. you don't know what's how it's been changed okay cool um one thing that is um currently uh keeping me uh thinking about different things is like one of the ideas you also mentioned in the book is the idea about facts being immutable right and that you um mm. uh, that you th- look at the facts and then you can see a current state from the facts if you look at them in, in order, right? And there are different architectures like the Kappa architecture, which put that qu- quite far, right? Make it like a core principle of the entire uh, thing. Um, but uh, especially like uh, I live in Germany and uh, like GDPR, all the... Um, Other, th- other rules and laws that we have here, um, mm. they say that we have the right to, to change things, like we can delete our data. Do you right. think there's the a right to be forgotten? Yes, kind of thing. exactly. Like, uh-huh. uh, if I have the right to be forgotten, then like facts, like they can be changed, right? They can, they need to be deleted, right? Do you think that right. there is a the problem, and does it make uh, those principles not apply in those scenarios, or is there a way around it? Uh, I think there's a way around it. Um, so I do, well, huh. there's, there's a lot of angles to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but one approach that I've seen, uh, which is, it happens in the Datomic database, which is an immutable database. Mm-hmm. It's append only. So it remembers the whole past, the whole history. And then if you want to make a, you know, a change, let's, We call it that. It uh, just adds a new new row, right? So, like, if you want to change your name, um, you know, you had a mistake in your name; it was misspelled, and you want to say, "Wait, my name is actually with a C and not a CK or whatever." Mm-hmm. So you you make a new row that says, you know, on today, uh, he's, this user said his name was Eric, right? And so, boom, now I know, okay, from, from now on, I'll count you as Eric. Um, what, what you're asking is, well, I want them to forget my name, mm-hmm. right? So what the solution is in Datomic is it leaves the row, but it deletes just the name. And so I still have the data. I still have the record that he changed his name, but I don't know what it was, mm-hmm. right? And you delete all of them, you know, all the records about my name. Uh, you know, not, you don't delete the record. You just delete the field, you know, you just like blank it out. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he changed his name here, changed his name, but I don't know what he changed it to. And so 
the data is gone from the database. The actual, the actual personal information is gone. Uh, but, uh, the, the structure of the database is still intact and, you know, it still preserves all that other information that you were trying to preserve, which mm-hmm. was, you know, the fact that things were changed. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't done an analysis to see if, you know, that actually implements the, the laws of mm-hmm. GDPR. Uh, but it seems to me like a, a good, um, a good first step for yeah. how you would do something like that. Um, well, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, one of the things uh, that I found interesting in the book that y- you claim that the ideas that you're proposing, that they are applicable in all kinds of languages, that you don't need to have a functional language to uh, apply those ideas, right? Uh, and you, you show that by using JavaScript uh, for all, mm-hmm. for the entire book, right? Um, so, my question is, do you think that there are also ideas from object-oriented programming that you should bring over? Like one of the ideas from object orientation is, for example, information hiding. Can I apply those ideas to functional programming as well, or is it not possible? Yeah, I don't think that they're incompatible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Um, just a, a note on, so I use JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't want, I wanted it to be accessible to as many people as possible. And I feel like JavaScript is readable to anyone who knows Java or C or anything like Mm -hmm. that. Um, but I also didn't want to use a functional language that where it's, it would seem like you were just learning the features of that language and like, Mm -hmm. Oh, if I don't have that feature, then I can't do this skill that he's teaching. I wanted it to be where you learned to build the skill or build the the feature yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's why I used JavaScript and it it turned out to be really great for teaching because um, it doesn't, it mean has, it has enough to do functional programming, but not, all the stuff that mm-hmm. you want. Um, and so, you know, basically if I had chosen Haskell, like, well, immutability is baked in, um, uh, pure functions are baked in, like all this stuff is just there. And like, it just, it's great. It's convenient. If you're, if you are a functional programmer, that's what you want. You want it to just be default. It makes it easier for the programmer. So it's better to program in Haskell (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you want to do functional programming, but it's not as good for learning and certainly not as good for me teaching because like I would have to show you how to build Haskell, which would be really hard. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, you're, you're also asking um, whether there's a lot of stuff from OO that would also be be applicable. And I think the answer is yes. I think Mm -hmm. there are, uh, there are a lot of great things in OO that uh, we use as, you know, functional programmers, you know, we kind of live in an OO world, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people, meaning, meaning the dominant programming paradigm in most, most places, most languages is object oriented. And it's very useful. It's very useful to have the kind of open polymorphism that OO has. And those things are very very cool. And one of my goals was to show that 
um, the ideas of FP are applicable like immediately. Mm. Like if you're having some trouble, some code is buggy, uh, you can start refactoring it in these ways that FP programmers think um, and it'll start improving the quality of the code. Mm-hmm. Um, that you don't have to go all in like, okay, we got to rewrite in a functional way. Um, I wanted it to be like, let's start with some typical, I mean, we're doing, we start with procedural code in the book. Let's, this is like standard procedural doesn't look like anything fishy, but from a functional perspective, it, there's a lot to improve. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we just, we start from there. Um, the idea of information hiding, mm-hmm. um, I think, is valuable. We talk about something very similar, which is called an abstraction barrier. Uh, uh, that's that's sort of how we talk about it in functional programming. And the idea is there's a lot to keep in your head when you're dealing with a when you're programming in a system. You have to understand like oh what data structure is that? And like, how does the API for that work? And like, what, what, uh, what methods are available for this API and that thing? And so you have a lot to keep in your head and you want some way of kind of cutting it up so that you can just, you at some point you don't have to understand the, the rest. Mm -hmm. You can just say, okay, I understand that when I have this object, I have these seven methods on it and I can call those and I don't have to care how it works on the inside. I just Mm -hmm. trust that it works. Right. And that's an abstraction barrier. It's like, I don't have to, I can ignore the details past those methods that I call. And uh, so we do that in functional programming. We create a barrier where you say, look, if you just stick to this interface, these, these functions, you don't have to worry about how it works. You don't mm-hmm. have to worry about what data structure I'm using to implement it. You don't have to worry about, you know, all the details. You just stick to these functions in the interface and you're, you know, you're good. And so in the book, we use it as a way of, you know, practically it means two teams don't have to communicate as much, mm-hmm. right? It removes a dependency between the teams because they've negotiated this interface it's like a contract right we're going to make the functions you need and you don't have to worry about how they work and you just use those functions and we'll trust that you won't mess with anything else you'll just call those functions and we don't have to talk except maybe to renegotiate if you need a new function or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the marketing team and the programming team can now coordinate because the marketing team has to write custom sales routines but they don't need to know how the shopping cart works. They just have this interface for it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, so one thing that you uh, said uh, just said was um, that in your book um, you showed how to implement certain things that are available in a language like Clojure or Haskell, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I really liked in the book was uh, you, you really showed like how do I implement copy on write if it's not there, for example, or how right. do I use structural sharing? And I think that's really valuable. And you also say that um, you should probably not implement all of that from scratch, but use a library for it. There are different libraries in, in the javascript ecosystem especially nowadays where like people use immutable js and and libraries like that what do you think are 
people missing that are using JavaScript using one of or two functional libraries in comparison to using a language like Clojure? Like, what do you think people uh, gain if they really move to a functional language? The, uh, I guess there's two things. One is you don't have to maintain the discipline yourself. You can mm -hmm. relax, mm -hmm. right? You, everything you make is immutable. You don't have to like double check that the thing you're passing it to is going to mm -hmm. mutate it. It's, it's immutable. Like there's no way to change it. Um, the other thing is that, uh, it's part because it's, it's part of our ecosystem enclosure. Uh, all the libraries do it too. So you don't have to like, you know, if you were going to do it in, in JavaScript and you're going to use some random NPM library, mm -hmm. um, you don't know what it's going to do. So you would probably have to do like a, a deep copy, a defensive copy whenever you use this thing. And, um, so you have to be kind of vigilant all the time. Whereas in Clojure, it's because it's the default, it's also the, the, the default of how libraries work and it's, it's just everywhere. Mm -hmm. What the other thing is, it means that concurrency is a lot easier, um, because, you know, immutability makes concurrency easier. It makes sharing easier. And, you know, if I often say that, that, uh, immutability is like the default in the real world. I know things change in the world, but when we're dealing with information, the information is like written on a piece of paper or something in the real world. And the paper doesn't change by itself. Mm -hmm. And if I need to share that information with someone, I put, make a photocopy of it and I give them a copy. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I put a piece of paper in my pocket, I don't expect it to change. Yeah. Um, even if I shared it with someone else. Right. And this is the kind of misconception that I think people have. because they're like, Oh, but my, you know, my age changes mm. or my, I can change my name. I can go and have my name changed at the, at the courthouse. Right. Mm -hmm. And all that's true. But the data about what your name was at that time shouldn't change, right? Yeah. The, the, the record that we have of your name has not changed mm -hmm. um, just because you went to the courthouse. Like they want, they want, they, they somehow want to mirror. Okay. Let me, let me put it another way. All the information systems in the real world, like the pre-computer information systems, that that uh, keep good records always focus on immutability. Mm -hmm. They go to great lengths to make things not change. So if you go to the doctor and let's say you have the flu, they, they're going to write that down. Okay, we did a test. They have the flu, you know, prescribed, you know, some medicine and they're going to come back in two weeks. Okay, they come back in two weeks. Do they throw the record away? They're like, oh, they're cured, cross it out. Mm -hmm. Like, no, never had the flu. No, they write a new record that says, okay, they visited again, no flu, no symptoms, they're good. 
you know, and then you put that in the file too, mm. right? You remember that they had the flu and you remember, so you are changing. You get the flu and then you're healed. Mm-hmm. But so you're changing, but the records shouldn't change yeah. and they go to great lengths. There's all sorts of like systems of files and how do you, how do you store this? And like, how do you write it so that other people can read it? Like all this stuff, it's the same with accounting. If you like spend $10, they don't cross out your balance and write write a new balance or, or worse, like white it out, you know, yeah. erase it and write the new balance. No, they write a line. They, de- they deducted, they, they took out $10 from their account. Um, and so then they have to sum it up. They balance it at the end of the day. Um, so all these systems, these information systems, which is what we're programming in usually in a, in a, in, in software engineering, they, we're, we're not like, I guess, simulating the world. We're simulating the information system, the folders and the files and the papers. That's what we're trying to simulate. And all those, they go to great lengths to try to keep those records as long as possible. And they all have this append only discipline, not mm-hmm. mutability. So I think that that's something that like, I mean, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be ungenerous mm-hmm. that the, um, OO object oriented programming kind of, uh, I want to say damaged mm-hmm. our thinking that I think OO is great for a lot of stuff, but what, um, the idea that you're going to model the person and all their changing attributes as fields on a, on a, on an object, that's not what you're doing. Mm. You are modeling the medical record and the doctor's visit and the notes that the doctor writes during that visit. That's what you're modeling. Mm-hmm. And we've, we, the OO analysis and design has taught us to model the person and that's not correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so it's, it's caused a lot of damage. And I think the FP people have been, um, you know, not immune, but they just avoided that damage that we're still programming information systems. Mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting that you describe it in that way and that you also refer to OO there because I think there's a something similar in databases, right? Like if I look at a typical database, no matter if it's a SQL database or if it's MongoDB, like if I change things, then uh, it is overwritten, right? The right. old record is not there anymore. So um, maybe it's more than just object-oriented programming. Maybe it's going beyond that, I- right? So uh, databases are really uh, fascinating. So when when all the databases that we use today were kind of seeded, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the original ideas were like in the 70s mm. when disk space was really expensive, right? And so you you couldn't afford to keep the record. You just mm. couldn't afford it. Um I mean, this is the same problem with in the year 2000, right? The Y2K problem. Like they were trying to save two characters mm-hmm. on, by not having the one nine, right? And they caused all this because it was cheap. 
it was it, that those two characters with millions of records that was expensive stuff right mm. now that we have really cheap hard drives um you know long-term storage it doesn't make sense anymore and and the databases know this they're mostly journaling now mm. right they do add like a record oh this this row changed this row changed this row changed and and then those are later kind of rolled up later in a batch sometime mm-hmm. later uh so databases the database implementers now know that it's cheap enough to 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 journal basically like this uh what do you call a write ahead log right they're they're appending all these changes to the database instead of actually on disk like changing my name they write a record somewhere that says okay the name has changed to this now and then later it kind of gets rolled up and eventually persisted to disk like in in the record itself um and they're only doing that to maintain the the uh, uh, you know backwards compatibility so that mm. all the software that already assumes that the database is immutable can still work mm. the the question is what would we what would a database look like today with if it was designed today where you wanted cheap or you have cheap hard drive right uh basically you know th- that's like the definition of big data right it's cheaper to keep it around than to figure out what to delete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have cheap hard, cheap storage, uh, and you know that it's actually pretty efficient to store this log, and you won't have to do the roll up. Um, what would it look like? And then that you want to keep these records around forever. You know, if you're writing an accounting system, you don't want to delete the mm. old stuff you you want to keep it around um because you never know when the tax person's going to come and say like what were the records like what did what did the account look like on december 31st you know mm. you want to know that um so it would be it would be an interesting thing to 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 do to say like what would how would we design a database now yeah yeah i think that's also interesting like i asked you uh, a few minutes ago about like uh gdpr and stuff and i think mm-hmm. most people don't think about that like their database keeps the right ahead log so uh even though right. even if you delete a person it's st- still in the right ahead log right so uh it's just hidden from you like as a developer right, right? that it's right it, but it's still there uh, and you could probably way. access it somehow there's yeah. an api to get to it but also in the gdpr if i'm not wrong mm-hmm. there are provisions for like it's a it, you delete it in a reasonable amount of time mm. so like the reasonable is up for interpretation right yeah we're like oh we made the delete and then the right ahead log will eventually be compacted right yeah it'll compact it into a onto the disc yeah and uh that's a it's probably a reasonable amount of time right? <laughs> yeah i agree um what one question that uh a friend of mine asked uh when i said that i will talk to you uh was that he asked because you have experience in both closure and haskell right um mm-hmm. how does 
the type system influence your programming style? Like, do you write a different kind of functional programming in those two languages or are they the same, but the type system is orthogonal to what you're doing, right? Uh, no, uh, the styles of programming are different for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the basic principles of functional programming are the same. Um, I, and I, I, I kind of do think that the, uh, the type system is orthogonal to FP. I think that, that a lot of people would disagree with me on that. They, they would say like, no, you need a type system to do FP. But then that excludes so many people from FP that it's not really fair. You're just like mm -hmm. arbitrarily excluding them because you don't like that style of programming, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the advantage of the Haskell type system, it's like having a, a logician on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's it's basically a logical uh, a system of logic that checks for consistency and says, well, you said you would pass this only a string and you're passing it a number here. Like something's wrong. And often it feels annoying, but then at some point you kind of like get to know this logician on your shoulder and you can avoid the problems ahead of time mm. right so like okay i know what he's going to tell me here so i'm gonna i'm gonna avoid it uh that that process for me took a long time i think about six months of full-time work mm -hmm. in haskell before i felt confident that the code i would write was going to pass the compiler and i often had these things like why not why don't you like this like and i it just required a lot of um a lot of experience, let's say, mm -hmm. just, you know, <laughs> fighting the compiler, it felt like, until realizing like, okay, he's right in this system, this is not correct. Mm -hmm. um, but what, I, and I think that's, that's very important that I said in this system, it is only one possible system. And uh, I don't think there is, there is, only one correct system mm. and that is one of the things that i think in the uh, untyped language like closure we recognize that like sometimes the system that is enforced by the language is not quite the system that you want mm -hmm. uh you want something you know equally rigorous but different mm -hmm. and we have made the compromise that we would rather implement the system ourselves in our heads, be that logician and have two logicians like, Oh, for this part of the system, we're going to use this logician for this part of the system. We're going to use this logician. And that comes with trade-offs. Like, you know, again, it's a discipline on you to do it correctly. A lot of people aren't going to follow any particular discipline mm -hmm. that makes any, you know, that's, a sound logical system, you know? Uh, and so you see a lot of that. Um, but, you know, for my personal experience, this is, you know, this is me. I, this is a huge debate and mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to solve it anytime soon. Um, for, but from my experience, it is easier to learn the Haskell 
type system, internalize it, and then when you move to closure, you have it in your head and implement it as a discipline. And sometimes you implement it wrong and you fix those bugs. Like it's it's not perfect. It's not like a compiler that's like every time it, it gets the system right. Um, but get a lot of the benefits from having that discipline in my closure code. Then, okay, so that's one system, right? Or one process where I learn the Haskell type system through trial and error, through fire, trial mm-hmm. by fire. And then when I'm in closure, because I've internalized it, I can do that. I can think that way and I can make my types line up. They're all in my head, right? It's not, che- it's not part of the language, but I, I'm, I'm doing it right. Versus the other way is to learn all these cool tricks you do in closure that are, you know, I guess you'd call them more dynamic, mm-hmm. right? And then go to Haskell and try to implement them. And you're like, oh, but the type system doesn't like it. Uh, and I can't, there's no way, like mm-hmm. I can't figure out a good way to implement them so that the type system likes them. You, That's a lot less fun. And I don't even know if it's possible. Okay. And I, that was one of the problems I had at first was, like I do functional programming and I consider this a functional programming, you know, technique Mm. doing this like dispatch on type and doing all this cool stuff. And I'd go to Haskell and it's like, well, let me try this way. No, doesn't work. Oh, oh, I get why it doesn't work. Let me try it this way. Oh no, that doesn't work either. Okay. Let me try this one. No, it doesn't work. Well, I'm just not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I felt like I had to drop a lot of the lispy closure skills that I had uh, to program in Haskell. Mm -hmm. The other way, I feel like I've got the benefits of Haskell. Some of them, 90%, 80%, something like that. I've got them when I'm programming in closure. Plus I've got all the other stuff. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's my experience. It's why I prefer closure. Um, but I do see the problem. I see when I look at other people's code, I'm like, eh, I don't like that you're returning sometimes a number, sometimes a string, sometimes an array or you mm-hmm. know a vector, and sometimes null. Like, <laughs> come on, pick a type. Like mm-hmm. this, it, it shouldn't have so many types. <laughs> uh-huh. Interesting. So, so you're basically saying that this logician on your shoulder, you should make it a, like a logician in your head that... Uh, uh, yeah. You can ignore if you want, but uh, and you can sometimes forget about it. But um, it doesn't need to be there and watch every step. Right, right. Mm-hmm. that's right. In your well, experience. yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, yes. I, 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 I think that that's a good way to put it. Like most of the time, I'm using it because it it makes a lot of sense not to return strings and mm-hmm. numbers from a function. Like, what is the function supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, you know. If it's got all these weird, this is again like what I was talking about with the complexity. Like, does returning a number mean something different from returning a string? Maybe there's a better way to encode that meaning in some bigger construct than just mm-hmm. the the class, the type of thing that you're returning. Like, maybe you should have a record that says, you know, that has some name for like the difference between the string and the number. Because what invariably happens is you're like, okay, I'm going to return a string and that means it's an error message. And a number means it's a success code. And then 
now you, you know, and that works fine. It, 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 you know, you can write the if statements and it works, right? But then later you're like, oh, but now I need to write a success message. The code is not enough. So now I have a string for an error and a string for a, like, how do I encode that? Because mm. I just did it based on the string versus number. Now it's string versus string and there's no way to know, mm. right? Or maybe you put error colon and success colon and now you're parsing strings. Like that's terrible. <laughs> um, talk about if statements everywhere. Um, and what if you return a string without an error colon in it? Like, you know, you have this other problem. So you need some bigger type, mm. right? Maybe it's a record that says status success, mm. you know, code for message and then the string. And then the error is status error message string. Okay. So what I find interesting in your description here is that I, I see it tiny like a tiny difference in what you said about functional programming uh, compared to like uh, oo programming or or however you want to call it and uh, in type systems and untyped languages because um, i asked you uh, if i use javascript and i just follow those principles why do i need a language to support me right and then you said yeah but then i don't have to think about it all the time right um And, right. But if it comes to type systems, you have a slightly different opinion, right? You say, okay, I can just do it in my hat. Why, where do you see the difference in those two aspects? That is a really good question. Um, so one has to do with the, the complexity mm -hmm. of it. So... If I'm doing uh, immutable data structures and it's by default, so I'm in Clojure, right? Mm -hmm. And as opposed to JavaScript, and I'm using only immutable data structures and I'm passing them around and sharing them, I am eliminating a huge class of problems mm. uh, of the sharing because. The, the types of problems that I'm eliminating are you're writing while I'm reading mm. or I'm writing while you're reading. And so I'm reading it kind of in between, like you're, you're not done yet, you know, like it, it's like, I'm um, like, let's say you, you had to write the score of a sports game on a blackboard mm. and It's a sports game where you have like a lot high score, right? So mm -hmm. like, let's say you're writing 172 and I'm a reporter and I'm going to read this thing and report to my newspaper, like the score or the radio, whatever. I'm reading it for the radio. I look over and you've already written one seven and I'm like, the score is 17. And mm -hmm. then you write the two and I'm like, oh no, I mean, <laughs> 172. Like that's the kind of problem that we have in software and it's invisible because you can't see, you can't see that that happened, right? Mm. Um, but you can imagine it happening where someone is writing to this array while I'm reading from it. I'm like, there's 14 elements, but you're still adding as I'm saying that, right? Um, so you avoid this huge class of problems and this is one of those class of problems that's multiplicative, right? Mm -hmm. The number of ways I can get that wrong increases factorially, 
right? Um, as opposed to with types and, and like, let's say getting the type wrong and learning about that at runtime, the, it, it probably does increase more than linearly, but in my experience, you will, those bugs would surface very quickly. Mm. So as opposed to like this one in a million chance that I won't see until production and I can like have no way to reproduce on my mm. local machine. Um, I am very likely to be able to reproduce someone returning an int instead of a string from a function. Mm. I can, I can make that function return the int uh, and see that. Mm. That that I, I think that that explains why I'm comfortable with dealing with, um, you know, the 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 discipline uh, at uh, of types in mm. my head. That it 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 seems to me like something that you would catch yeah. all the time. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Like if I, uh, like if someone does JavaScript programming, then people, uh, some people will go to them and say like, you should probably do TypeScript instead because then mm -hmm. it's safer, right? And uh, yeah. then you ask why and they say, yeah, because at any point you could return a number instead of a string. And I'm like, but I don't do that, right? <laughs> so <laughs> why, why, why Or if should... I do it, I catch it right yeah. away. Like, yes. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot to that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that there's also a lot to having it caught mm -hmm. like that's, there's huge. And I like TypeScript. I think yeah. it's great. I think the, this idea that it's optional, um, you know, you can kind of incrementally tighten down your code base. Mm -hmm. I think that that is, is very powerful and it, it's sort of like the best of both worlds, yeah. I would say yeah. that, uh, You can enforce it if you want, but you're not forced to. Like even a program that doesn't type check with TypeScript can still be converted to JavaScript just fine and still run. Mm. Um, and if you leave out types, it just doesn't try. It's just like, well, okay, I can't do anything with this. Yeah. But if you put types on this function, it will try mm. and it will tell you problems that it finds. And I think also the uh, the other cool thing is it leaves room for a second type checker. Mm. Like you could imagine a second type, you know, optional typing system that had a different logic to it mm. that would be compatible with TypeScript, meaning they could both run. Like you could write a superset of TypeScript <laughs> that had different types and different kinds of annotations that converted to TypeScript and then the TypeScript checker would check and then that would convert to JavaScript. Like you could imagine that. And so it would let you use the types that work in different parts of your system mm. differently. I mean, I, I think like this is going deep into the debate. Mm -hmm. I do want to bridge these two things. I think we don't talk enough. It really hurts me. It pains me that the two sides of the debate can't listen to each other and communicate. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to listen to both sides, but it's painful because anything I say 
gets interpreted like mm-hmm. i didn't say that i didn't mean that that's yeah. you're 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 assuming i'm on that side and assuming this whole background i'm not saying all that stuff anyway i, I think that that's you know we need more love for each other mm-hmm. you know to just see each other for who we are and not okay that that's a separate podcast <laughs> but one thing that i think that is very useful to see is that where where does closure closure shine and where does haskell shine they're both really well designed languages and they have this major difference of of static versus dynamic typing closure shines really well when you're dealing with unknown and changing data mm-hmm. right there are some json apis that i've used that the type if i was going to type that json meaning re- develop a type that fully represented all the possible responses i could get back it would be a gigantic un un understandable type i would not be able to understand the type 2 weeks later if i wrote it if i got it right you know what closure says is well maybe you don't need to understand the type that well um there's parts that you can ignore um you can handle different parts in different branches so you know i'm i'm thinking for instance of the wordpress api mm-hmm. um sometimes it will return in, like let's say it's returning a collection of something like a collection of blog posts cuz it's wordpress right sometimes it will return an empty array sometimes it will return null and sometimes it will return false or zero or something like that and you're like why don't you just return an empty array like it's either an it's an array it's either got zero or more you yeah. know like that seems to be like the type right but it doesn't do that it returns false sometimes mm-hmm. and sometimes the the type of a field depends on the value of some other field this is very hard to type and it's hard to like like you read the docs and that's not in there you have to actually make the request and see what you get and um develop it kind of incrementally like oh okay sometimes i'm going to get a zero so i got to check for that and like so the, the closure is better at that at like mm-hmm. that incremental like sometimes i'm going to i'm going to be strict on types but only in certain branches and like so you can be very flexible haskell is good for when you you have figured out your domain and you want to tighten it down and like you know exactly how it's supposed to work and you want to avoid all the corner cases and you want to encode that as a check very early in the compile stage right and you want the logic you can figure out all this logic about it and encode that as the type and um i feel like what we need is the two extremes mm. we don't need a we don't need uh, so what a lot of people try to do is come up with like a compromise in the middle right we where you have like oh let's you can do what you do in closure but we're going to kind of check it for big errors and big problems mm. like that's not so useful or you know for instance like something might return a null and you didn't check that 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's that's useful, but like, is it worth the whole complexity of this type system to just know that? What you want is the two extremes. The I'm gonna not check mm-hmm. <laughs> the types and I'm gonna be able to be very dynamic and go down different branches and then kind of at runtime make stuff make sense, right? Um, convert zeros to empty lists and you know, all that stuff. We do that here. And then there are some things, even in closure, where I'm like, I know how this is supposed to work and this needs to work right every time. And I want as much checks and I don't want anybody to change it. I want to lock it down with a type. I want to, I want to never write, be able to write code that will break it. Like all these things, I want that too. That's the other extreme. Mm. And I don't think you can, um, you, you don't want to compromise. You want the two extremes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so anyway, that's my idea is like, that's yeah. why TypeScript works. It's because it's got the two extremes. It's like, you've got the it's totally loose JavaScript, do whatever. And then you've got the, I only accept these five strings mm-hmm. to this function. Right. And tell me when I, when I'm doing something different, like I, you could make your build system fail if like the TypeScript doesn't check and, uh, you want to move kind of discreetly from one to the other. Mm-hmm. You want to say, okay, there's a totally loose function versus now, okay, I know the five strings it should take. I'm going to encode that into TypeScript and like lock that down forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for the foreseeable future, let's say. And that, uh, you know, that's what you want. And I think Haskell, it's it's hard, but what it needs to do is l- let things be loose, like really loose for certain classes of problems like those kinds of like loose json apis um you know i've i've fielded a lot of complaints from haskellers like you know arguments let's call them where they'll say like well how do you use an api if you don't know anything about it it's mm-hmm. like no that's not the that's not the problem you know a lot about it it's just that it's really hard to take all that you know about this json api and encode it as a type mm. it's really hard to do it's got too many variables in it and it's not about zero knowledge versus total knowledge there's knowledge that doesn't fit the system mm. like the system was not designed for this kind of lucy you know it's php people they're returning whatever mm-hmm. right th- th- this is another dynamic language generating the api it's got multiple it's an open source project you know there's you know hundreds thousands of contributors changes to it it's got backwards compatibility things like they don't want to change existing stuff they made mistakes they know it but they have to keep it there because there's clients like there's all these issues it's evolving over time so like your type that you wrote today might not work tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And you know, th- th- these are, these are just the realities of, of working with these kinds of systems. Um, it's, I, I believe it's the kind of thing you would never be able to lock down with a good type. Um, I've, I've heard the same thing with people dealing with like medical records. Hmm. Like there's, there are standards, but then the standards are evolving all the time. And even with the standards, they're not, they don't capture exactly what the doctor wants to say. 
And so the doctor will take a field that's supposed to be a number and they'll write NA, not mm-hmm. applicable, right? That wasn't captured in the standard that they should be able to do that, but they needed to do it for that particular patient. And, and so now you get the CSV of all these medical record things and there's, it says it's supposed to be a number. We typed it this way and now there's an NA. What do you do? What mm. do you do? And in, you know, it, it depends on your application, but in closure, we say, well, let's not try to parse it yet. Like maybe we don't even need that field for what we're like this particular task that we're doing. Right? We don't even look at that field. So why even try to parse it as an integer? Just let it be, just let mm-hmm. it be. Right. Or like maybe some, some point down the, down the road, something will know what to do with it. Right. So we got to leave it because they might convert the NA to zero or some other defaults that really is semantic depends really on some other information that we'll have at a different stage. So we have a, we have a model that's loose for a reason for dealing with these systems that aren't giving us like perfect information and it's changing changing and stuff like that. But there are a lot of systems where, you know, it, you know, the model and you want to bake it in. So that's my, my, you want the extremes. Yeah, I really like that explanation. Um, I but I also really liked uh, your message about like let's uh, uh, learn from each other. Like let's learn yeah. from different programming languages because I think like there. Uh, this is what I really liked about your book that you said like even if you are in JavaScript, you can still apply ideas from here because um, the ideas are not bound to a language, right? They are right. ideas and we can apply them. And in some language, it's simpler and in other language, it's more complicated to use them, but we can use the ideas. And I think that the, I think the our uh, programming community is very split into camps and People mm-hmm. tend to ignore what other camps have already learned and then relearn it the hard way, right? Instead of just learning from them uh, what they learned, right? And there is no right. right solution for everything, but I think that it's worth listening to what other people have learned in their field, in their language, in their framework or whatever. Um, and um, this is why I really enjoy conversations with people that are uh, doing Uh, other programming languages, other fields, because I always learn something that I can apply in the languages I use or the frameworks I use. Yeah, so, I, I think we do need, we just need to be patient with each other. We need to, you know, listen to what the person is saying and not assume, you know, it's, it's just like in politics, mm-hmm. like a person makes an argument about some issue, like listen to what they said. Don't, assume, oh, they are on this side of that issue. And so I'm going to put them into this camp and they must also believe this and that and that. They didn't say those things. Just listen to what they say. Mm -hmm. And I know it's hard because there's so much history Mm -hmm. of debate and, you know, bad arguments, bad rhetoric about it, uh, misunderstandings that have been voiced. And like, now you feel like you resent the other side for misunderstanding you and now so you're gonna you know not listen to them and you know we gotta we gotta gotta have some love we gotta come together Mm. um yeah i actually should do like a podcast about that because i feel i feel this very emotionally like yeah i feel unlistened to 
And I know I've made mistakes and I haven't listened to people and I'm trying to listen. And it's it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> yes. And the idea of of functional programming being something that you can like take skills from even if you're not in a functional language i think that this is another thing that the community the functional programming community has been poor at communicating Mm. that we we often look at the most advanced stuff you know like haskell and some like really far out idea that you know, using an effect system with applicative functors and like all this stuff. Like we see that as like the answer mm-hmm. and anything less than that is just hacking, you mm-hmm. know, like and, and it's saying that in an insulting way. Um, I think that that undercuts all of the, the great skills that are, that, are fundamental to those ideas that you know you know (laughs) let me put it this way i i've I've been teaching closure for a while and i would teach all these cool far out ideas thinking yeah this is where it's at this is where like man people are gonna love this and then i'll get a question and someone's like oh i'm having trouble with my code it seems like I'm not really getting how to do this enclosure and I'm all ready to apply some like new cool thing. And I open up their code and I realize, oh, you are using global mutable variables. You're not using map filter and reduce. Uh, It's just like really basic stuff that you need. Mm -hmm. And I read a book that was addressed to the, the PHP community it was basically how to use map filter and reduce in PHP. And it was a huge success because no one had written that for them. Mm. No one had said like, hey, there's a lot of benefit just from this really basic idea. And so that was a eye opener for me for when I was writing Grokking Simplicity was like, no one has like addressed these really basic things like, how do you recognize if a function has side effects? And mm. what do you do? Like, what what, what is a a, a a mitigation that you can do if you have these functional side effects? How do you start to make you know f- pure functions, functions without side effects from them? Yeah. Um, what what parts are good to do that with? Why would you do that? Like, I spend eight chapters on on this on pure functions whereas most functional programming books will define it in a sentence or two at the beginning and then go on to monads like you know right away it's like whoa there's a lot there that like no wonder it seems inaccessible to Mm. people it's like we're not no one is writing the basics yeah true but i also think that there is something that you need before you go into that and i think that's that you don't order programming languages or paradigms in like a hierarchy like oo and if you get better then you go to fp or uh, php is worse than all other languages right i think there are definitely things that other programming languages uh, programming language communities can learn from php and a lot of people don't because they think like oh php what can i even learn from those people right and i think that's that's like a huge mistake 
uh, we're doing mm-hmm. it. Uh, that's why I think that uh, things that we is like, I think that the things you wrote in the book, they are very basic for you, right? But they might not be basic for other people, right. but you're not writing it in a style that says like, you should already know that. Why don't you know that? Right. And <laughs> right. I think that's valuable. And I think that's something that we all should do more and um, teach people things that we think are basic for us without assuming that they are less smart because they don't know right. that. Right. 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 I, I definitely, um, I, I, I mean, I definitely believe all of that. And I tried to put that in the, in grokking simplicity. Like um, I, treat functional programming as a set of skills, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a set of skills that might be foreign to you if you don't know functional programming and you might know some of them, but it's, you know, it's a loose definition. It's, it's skills that I see functional programmers do more than non-functional programmers, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like a very loose definition, but um, these are all skills that I mean, every functional programmer I've talked to has said, oh yeah, these are important. I do these every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to me that no one had defined functional programming in terms of these particular skills. Um, and I've had debates. I was having one yesterday about what is functional programming and like, is my, is, is the stuff I'm saying about actions, calculations, and data, is that the definition of functional programming. They're saying no. And I'm saying, well, maybe, maybe it's a good definition. Maybe it's not. It's a working definition. It's mm-hmm. the definition for the book. And regardless, if you ask any functional programmer, is this important to know for functional programming? They would all say yes. There's no doubt. So, um, you know, t- kind of inverting the question. It's like, let's not try to define it. Let's just say, what do all functional programmers know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's start there. That that seemed to really like let the let the ideas bloom into the book. Yeah, and I also think that it's uh, maybe it's also not very useful to to define functional programming, right? Maybe it's more yeah. useful to just say here are a lot of ideas and tools that you can use, and you can use some of them. Maybe someone reads your book, and all they take away from this is structural sharing, for example, right? right. And they add it because they it solves their problem, or maybe defensive copying is solving the problem for them because they have a legacy system which does weird stuff and it helps them protect it uh, the application from that right and right. i think um that's much more useful to see like uh, the the ideas and maybe a combination of those ideas is what helps you maybe one of those ideas is not helpful to you and you ignore it right and i think that's, right. uh, that's really nice the all or nothing approach i think is is too um it's too much to ask yeah like it might be a it might be a useful ideal to move toward if you are dedicated to functional programming and you want your system to have all the benefits of it, like have this ideal in the future, like we're going to have no side effects and it's going to be like, that's a useful ideal to move toward, but um, you got to start where people are. And um, I think the movement toward the ideal is what I'm calling functional programming. Mm -hmm not the ideal itself. You'll never get there, right? The the arrival is functional. Pro- like that's not a good definition. Yeah. 
So thank you so much for writing the book. I uh, I really enjoyed it, and thank you so much for this uh, conversation. Um, I we have a uh, we have a few ebook codes for people that want to read your book and for the others uh, links to the book so uh, if you listen to the episode and you find one of those codes and they still work then you get the book for free <laughs> otherwise uh, you can check it out so yeah thank you so much for your time and uh, to everyone else have a nice day thank you so much it's a pleasure 